Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is by Josh Zumbrun. Tip jars abound, but are they filling? Then Claire Ansbury wrote, When your spouse is your best friend. We have an article by Will Fuhrer, Clorox warns of product shortages. Shad White wrote, Jimmy Buffett didn't need a music degree. And then Eugenia Cheng wrote, How many partygoers will drink how much wine? All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Tip Jars Abound, But Are They Filling? Prompts encouraging customers to leave a tip seem to be popping up everywhere, quietly raising prices for everything from dinner to the doctor. The prospect of a future where every outing requires you to tack on a little extra change is also fueling a backlash. But the spread of tipping requests might be generating more buzz than money. The numbers, such as they are, don't point to a surge in cash. Just because everyone asks doesn't mean most customers are giving it, said Michael Lynn, a professor at Cornell University's School of Hotel Administration. The data tells us in many of these newer contexts, no, they're not. Ad hoc surveys suggest tipping may not be as widespread as the prompts make it seem. In May, the polling firm YouGov surveyed 1,000 Americans and found only two situations in which most people tip, restaurants and hairdressers or barbers. For hotel cleaners and concierges, Taxi and Uber drivers, baristas, car mechanics, takeaway delivery drivers, and even bartenders, getting tips isn't the norm. If tipping housekeepers or bartenders has yet to become standard, how likely is it to become typical for landlords or doctors or the self-checkout machine? Perception and reality on tipping have diverged in part because the subject is a data black hole. There have been no good systemic surveys of different types of service establishments over time, asking if they make requests for tips or whether their customers tip them, Lynn said. There's no good systemic data to say if we're being asked for tips more than ever before. For purposes of government scorekeeping, tips occur and occupy a gray zone between compensation, which is obligatory, and charity, which isn't. When the Bureau of Labor Statistics tracks the prices that go into inflation measures, it includes so-called hidden fees or drip fees that aren't in the sticker price. But the Bureau omits tips on the basis that they are voluntary. In other words, if you're tipping more because you feel expected to, that might feel like inflation, but won't be measured as such. In theory, tips are taxable, but here too there's rampant underreporting. In 2006, the IRS estimated that over half its tip income, 
$23 billion of an estimated $44 billion went unreported. People who dodge taxes are probably not the type to report income on other surveys. Back in 1996, the BLS sent field economists to New Orleans to survey establishments and individuals face-to-face about their tip income. The test went almost comically badly. Only 11 of 359 establishments had actual tip data. Many provided only partial records. Establishments and workers alike often had no record at all of how much had been earned. The non-response rate to tipping questions was about 40%. The field economists were asked whether the data they collected was any good. They said only 55% of it was. Needless to say, this didn't become a regular survey. Data from payroll processors or point-of-sale systems tell only part of the story because they often don't reflect tips paid in cash. The story this fragmentary data tells doesn't point to a flood of tipping income. Toast, a provider of restaurant payment systems, says the average tip at quick service restaurants, as a percentage of the bill, has trended down for five years, with no apparent uptick during the pandemic. At full service restaurants, tip rose early in the pandemic but began to slide again in 2021. By the second quarter of this year, they were back down to roughly where they were on the eve of the pandemic. In the absence of hard data, some economists have turned to modeling the dynamics behind tipping. Rand Siskowski of Tel Aviv University and Lawrence Debo of Dartmouth conclude people tip for two fundamental reasons, gratitude for a service and pressure to comply with a social norm. In some cases, this leads to a tipping war. For example, you want your waiter to feel appreciated and want to impress friends when paying the check. If you see a friend giving 20%, suddenly 15% seems chintzy and you up the ante. If everyone does that, truly showing appreciation might require a 25% tip. In a typical restaurant setting, tipping is very behavioral. Feelings of gratitude, feelings of avoiding shame by not tipping, pressure to adhere to a social norm, said Debo. The model suggests ultimately firms in an industry will, pardon the pun, reach a tipping point. All will abolish or embrace tipping. Essentially, if only one firm asks for tips, People will be annoyed because it isn't the norm, and if only one abolishes tipping, it will lose business because prices look high. For example, restaurants that have tried to ban tipping and raise prices to accommodate higher wages have given up when customers resisted the higher prices. The opposite has happened in the cruise industry, where a generation ago it was standard to bring an envelope of cash to give staff at the end of the trip. In the year 2000, Carnival began to phase out tipping. Other firms embraced the simplicity. By 2013, the final major holdout, Royal Caribbean, abandoned its voluntary tipping policy. If gratitude and social pressures determine where we tip, that can predict where the practice will or won't catch on. Not at the doctor, who doesn't need the financial help, 
and who you don't visit in the company of friends. Tipping prompts in a setting where the recipient is unclear are also unlikely to spur feelings of gratitude. In other words, it's okay not to tip the self-checkout machine. And now, when your spouse is your best friend. Being married to your best friend can lead to happier marriages and greater life satisfaction. It can also be a burden. About half of married people and couples living together say their partner is their best friend, with men more likely to say so than women. 48% of married women listed their spouse as their best friend, compared with 64% of men in a 2017 study. Couples who are best friends say they work on it. They listen, share feelings, thoughts, affection, and laughter, and explore new things together. But relying on one person to be your everything, partner, cheerleader, lover, counselor, and playmate, can be too much even for spouse superheroes. We're adding being a best friend to the list of everything else a spouse is supposed to be, said Joshua Coleman, a psychologist specializing in family dynamics. He often hears from women who tend to have richer social networks. I wish my husband had more friends. It's useful to have a different confidant to listen and give objective advice when you are worried about things at home. Like guys, you can be deeply in love and have a healthy relationship and still want to go shopping to a baseball game or out for a beer with a best friend from work or high school. Bill Jatiri of Eli, Nevada, counts himself among the 40% of Americans without best friends. Bill, 59 years old, and his wife, Laurel, knew each other one year before getting married in the Las Vegas drive-thru Little White Wedding Chapel 28 years ago. And while Bill says he fell in love at first sight, she wasn't his best friend. We had to prove that to each other, which for them meant living through military deployments, he says. Laurel, 67, agrees. Both had been betrayed by former partners, and it took time to build trust and become best friends. One of the best things they did, she says, was talk about everything they wanted out of the relationship. Now, Bill, a prison warden, says his favorite day is Saturday when he isn't working. They shop and watch movies. Took me a while, both of us, to wrap our heads around the fact that you can be best friends and spouses at the same time, he says. Millennial couples often feel pressure to have their partner as their best friend, says Liz Higgins, founder of Millennial Life Counseling and herself a millennial married to her best friend. Some in their late 20s and early 30s saw their own parents divorce or remain in unhappy marriages. They want to avoid that and think having a best friend partner will help. If that's the goal, she says, they need to focus on what it means to be a best friend and work on that with their partner. One key is remaining curious and exploring new things together. You hit a dead end when you think you know everything there is about your partner, she says. It is also important to realize that marriage is a journey, and there are times you feel like your partner is your best friend and times you don't, she says. That doesn't mean you're with the wrong person. John Hellowell, a Canadian economist who researches happiness and co-wrote the 2017 study on marriage and friendship, 
says being best friends with your spouse increases some of the well-being benefits that come with marriage, such as life satisfaction. Hillwell and his wife Millie weren't best friends when they married in 1969. We were smitten and deeply attracted to each other, says John, 86. You don't really know each other when you get started. Millie, 82, calls John her best friend, yet also works to maintain friendships outside their marriage. This has helped during John's career and several moves, as well as other times of need. After losing a grandchild, she and John consoled each other. Still, the hurt was so deep that she reached out to other friends who could listen without experiencing the pain. I needed to get it off my chest and not put it on his chest, she says. Maria and Kirsten Palladino married 14 years ago. They run a business from their home, equally wed, and have twin boys. They love each other and talk for hours without running out of things to say. If asked to name best friends, though, they would list other high school and graduate school friends. I'm quick to call high school friends my best friends, said Maria, 44. They wouldn't apply that term to their relationship. Kirsten, 45, notes that gay couples have long been described as just good friends. People would say, that's Uncle Larry's very good friend. Or Dolores and Mary never married, but they have each other. Isn't their friendship special, says Kirsten. We're much more than good friends. I'm always hesitant to use language that was once used to disparage our community. Rachel Collins, 42, of Bonnie Lake, Washington, has two best friends. Her best friendship with Jen Corp was profiled back in a 2019 Wall Street Journal article. Her husband, who is Jen's brother, has become her second best friend, their connection deepening in the course of their 14 years together. Each relationship is different, but both can be your best friend, she says. Rachel's husband, Josh Collins, 38, says he didn't have a best friend before Rachel. He has a group of three close friends from church. He trusts them and can ask their advice, yet believes he can have only one best friend in life. That would solely be Rachel. And now, Clorox warns of product shortages. Clorox quarterly earnings will take a hit from a recent cyber attack, which disrupted operations and dented availability of the company's products. The cleaning products maker said in a securities filing that the fallout from the attack will cause a material impact to its current quarter financial results. The longer-term impact is uncertain, given the continuing recovery. The cyber attack on Clark's information technology infrastructure, initially disclosed back on August 14th, prompted the company to take certain systems offline and resort to manually ordering and processing products at a lower rate than normal. Clorox is still operating at a reduced rate, which has recently hurt product availability. Last week, a cyber attack at MGM Resorts International caused widespread disruption on the Las Vegas Strip, including requiring manual check-ins and the use of physical key cards so guests could access rooms. Clorox said it believes the cyber attack is now contained, but that it caused wide-scale disruption of operations 
after damaging some of its IT infrastructure. The company said it expects to begin transitioning back to normal operations soon and will increase the full production over time. At this time, the company cannot estimate how long it will take to resume fully normalized operations, Clorox said. Clorox struggled through the shortages during the early months of the pandemic when surging demand for the company's namesake cleaning wipes and sprays outstripped its production capacity. Clorox boosted production, but demand abated as pandemic restrictions eased and vaccines became plentiful. In 2020, the company's shares climbed almost 32%, but fell nearly 14% the following year, an additional roughly 20% in 2022. So far this year, shares are up about 1.7%. Over the past year, the company has managed to keep sales growing by raising prices, even as consumers pulled back on purchases of Clorox products. For the current fiscal year, which began back in July, Clorox expects sales to be flat to up 2%. And now, Jimmy Buffett didn't need a music degree. How much should taxpayers spend on the salary of a sociology professor whose expertise is in urban stand-up comedy? What if you could spend that money on someone who teaches skills useful for the economy, like nursing or engineering? For my money, I'd prefer the latter. Consider an example. Electrical engineering majors earn more than $71,000 after graduation in Mississippi, and therefore pay a lot in taxes, whereas sociology majors earn a third of that. The state nevertheless sends our public universities the same amount to educate the engineer as it does the sociologist. This makes no sense. Moreover, human capital is mobile. Taxpayers shouldn't be forced to invest in someone only to watch him leave. More than 60% of anthropology majors will exit Mississippi after graduation. The money spent on them could be educating in-demand agricultural economic grads. Because of this flight, Mississippi's taxpayers have been subsidizing the economies of big out-of-state cities for years. We should change how taxpayers fund public universities to remove the incentive colleges have to invest in low-skill majors. It's more expensive for Mississippi's universities to attract a top-notch computer science professor than it is to hire the stand-up comedy expert. But because public universities get the same appropriation for students in both computer science and sociology, the colleges have no incentive to push high-skilled degrees. We should change this by encouraging the degrees that are really important. Aren't gender studies majors important too? If universities think so, let them raise private funds. A tax-paying plumber shouldn't have to fund it. What about the benefits of reading broadly? If you love German literature, great. Go to the library and start reading. Or major in math and take some classes in German literature. Or earn a degree in it, but don't ask taxpayers to help you foot the bill because you will likely need to leave the state to get a job. Won't this proposal destroy the creative class? Again, no one is abolishing creative majors. You can still major in rhetoric. Remember, though, 
that may not be wise. You may never be able to repay your student debt. And my state has produced great artists, from William Faulkner to Jimmy Buffett, who didn't major in the art form they produced. No English or music degree necessary. Let's be honest about the ide ideological element, too. Most taxpayers in my state don't want their money paying for programs that seem to be little more than indoctrination factories. Some tenured faculty are dedicating their entire life's work to convincing students there are 58 genders. Mississippians don't want to subsidize that. Some states are starting to realize this dynamic. Texas passed legislation this year to change community college funding to fit the needs of the state economy. It's time for every state to consider the same for its public universities. And now, how many partygoers will drink how much wine? When I'm planning a party or other event, it can be frustratingly difficult to get a reliable guest count in advance. Some people are unwilling to commit, while others express enthusiasm but then don't show up. I found this to be especially problematic since the pandemic, as people are either wary of social gatherings or just haven't settled into new social norms. Common wisdom might say to assume that only two-thirds of positive RSVPs will actually be there, or to count definite answers and maybe separately. But I take a mathematical approach by using some probability theory. First, I use my personal knowledge of each friend to assign them a probability of actually showing up. Friends who can be relied on to keep their plans get assigned a one, while those who are perennially flaky get something more like a 0.2, and everyone else gets something in between. I then add up all those figures, and this total typically ends up as being a fairly accurate prediction of how many people will be there. In the mathematical field of prob probability, this is called the expected value. If you need just a single result, it is calculated by multiplying each possible outcome by its probability, which is rel relatively simple for RSVPs since the person will either be there and counts as one attendee or not, which counts as zero, so you really only need to compute the probability of them showing up. When you add up all the probabilities, you may get a fraction of a person in the total, but it's only an estimate so you just round off. Of course, your friends might be offended if you tell them what probability you assigned them, or like mine, they might be amused and try to give more accurate replies in the future. I do another, slightly more complex, expected value calculation to work out how much wine to buy. This time I guess, from my personal knowledge of my friends, how much I think each person will drink if they do show up. I then multiply each person's probable drink quantity by their probability of being there, and that total is the expected amount of wine to have on hand. This may be a subject to avoid at the party itself. An expected value works like a weighted average, but instead of weighting values by significance or frequency, we weight them by the probability that they will occur. In these simple examples, I can do the calculation on a spreadsheet. But in more complicated examples, the possible values and their probabilities are 
on a continuum of many theoretical outcomes. This means there's an infinite number of values to add together and a spreadsheet won't work. Instead, some calculus may help, particularly a technique called integration, essentially a way of adding up infinite numbers of values where the sum of them is still finite. This more complex approach can be used to calculate things like an expected rate of return on an investment or an expected amount of rainfall for the upcoming day or week. The returns or rainfall under different scenarios are worked out, and then the probability of each scenario occurring can also be worked out, so that the expected value can be calculated. Of course, it's not an accurate prediction of the future, but it's still a good tool to guide our decision makings. For my party, since I think that running out of wine is worse than having too much, I estimate everyone's drinking on the high side and then throw in a few extra bottles at the end of the calculation just in case. After all, an expected value is still just an estimate, but it's better than a random guess. Cheers. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.